Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Thank you for joining us for this presentation. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a doctoral program, and two new online Master of Arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. Or to support the work of IWP, please visit iwp.edu slash donate. This lecture is a part of the 12th Annual Kosciuszko Chair Spring Symposium in honor of Lady Blanca Rosensteel. We'll be hearing from Peter Stahura. Peter Stahura held a personal chair in modern European history at the University of Stirling in the UK, where he, all, he was also director of the Center for Research in Polish History. He is now director of the Independent Research Center for Modern Polish History and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in London. Professor Stahura has published extensively in his primary research specialisms of the Weimar Germany and the Second Polish Republic. Mr. Sahara, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Shall I proceed? Yes, you can go ahead. Very good. The title of today's paper is Polish-Ukrainian Relations, Past and Present, Some Thoughts, which means that this will not be a detailed comprehensive analysis of a very complex issue. But I do hope to provide some kind of narrative which in some respects runs contrary to some established opinions, particularly those which have appeared in recent times following the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. First of all, I would say that the current crisis in Ukraine has understandably provoked um, outrage across the world and at the same time has stimulated widespread sympathy for the plight of the Ukrainian people who are right in the middle of widespread carnage. It is also remarkable in the current circumstances that the huge number of Ukrainian refugees who have been flocking to neighboring countries Almost 65% of 4 million refugees have landed in Poland. Um, do you mind if we pause one second? Okay. Sorry, I'm just trying to, your face is kind of like halfway off the screen. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah, so I just want to make sure that when we put it on, it'll be, we can see you. But yeah, that's right there is perfect. Shall I start again? Yeah, you can start again. Is that? That looks good for you, and you're able to access your notes. Okay, so you'll cancel what has been said already. Yeah, yeah, I can edit all that out. Yeah, it's no big deal at all. I'll start at the beginning. Okay, good. We can see you now. Thank you so much. Sorry about that. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, I've got a thing here that tells me to look at the camera, so I shall do that. Okay. Uh, the title of my presentation today is Polish-Ukrainian Relations, Past and Present some thoughts, which indicates that I shall not be providing a detailed 
comprehensive analysis of what is a very complex issue. Instead, I shall highlight particular episodes and themes in that relationship over the last hundred years or so. The current crisis in Ukraine, occasioned by the illegal Russian invasion, has understandably evoked worldwide sympathy for the appalling suffering of the Ukrainian people. Just as striking has been the, the, um, the, the response from the Polish side, which has been extremely generous, but remarkable insofar as, in some respects, this kind of reception runs contrary to a lot of previous Polish-Ukrainian history. And so today's paper is designed as some kind of, or something of a corrective to that narrative. Um, particularly also, I think, as has become clear over the last month or so, very few people in the UK, and I imagine further afield, know anything about Ukraine. And there's been a facile assumption that somehow Poles and Ukrainians have been friends for a long time, thus explaining the welcome that Poles have given to Ukrainian refugees. But this is not necessarily a true picture of that relationship, and that's what I want to address this afternoon. A natural starting point would be the re-establishment of Poland as an independent country at the end of the First World War. Even before the war had ended and there had been talk of an independent Poland being re-established, there were various voices and organizations which were campaigning very hard against the very idea of Poland becoming independent again. And that was just to underline that when Poland was finally re-established, according to the Paris Peace Conference, it was going to face formidable obstacles at home and abroad, principally from those groups which could not contemplate a viable independent Poland emerging from the ashes of the First World War. The Polish-Ukrainian War, which began almost immediately that the First World War ended, began in November 1918 and continued until July of the following year. It was a bitter conflict, both sides very determined, but ultimately, thanks to a combination of the Polish army and teenage Polish volunteers, the Polish side was victorious and thus secured the historically Polish city of Lwów and the surrounding area of the Kresy, the Eastern Borderlands, for the Second Polish Republic. However, there was bound to be a reaction from the Ukrainians. In the short term, a faction of the Ukrainian nationalists linked up with Poland to oppose Bolshevism. But that alliance petered out very quickly. 
leaving a huge reservoir of Ukrainian resentment, not only against Bolsheviks from the Soviet Union, but principally towards Poland. And so the Ukrainian nationalists, once the parameters of the Polish state had been established, the Ukrainian minority in Poland numbered some five to six million and posed a principal threat to the Polish state, <clears throat> which was also being faced with opposition from a number of eight neighboring countries, notably the Soviet Union and Germany. But Ukrainian resentment was palpable from the outset. Um, and really set the tone for the relationship between Poles and Ukrainians throughout the interwar period. Um, during that period, the Polish state tried as best as possible when conditions and resources were in place to honor its commitments under the so-called Minorities Treaty of 1919, which had been part of the settlement at the Paris Peace Conference. And it obliged Poland with its large number of minorities, some one third of the population at any given time, to make concessions and reforms to these minorities, including, of course, the Ukrainians. Consequently, the situation emerged where the state, the Polish state, over time, provided a series of reforms and concessions for the minorities. There was some political opposition to these concessions within Poland itself, notably from the nationalist right, the Andetsia, but nonetheless, this policy of implementing the Minorities Treaty continued as best as the Polish state could do. In practice, as regards the Ukrainian minority, it was now allowed, as time went on, to practice its own orthodox religion, to speak its own language, to form cooperatives, uh, press, even political parties, some of which eventually took seats in the Polish parliament, upper house, the Senate, and also the lower house is them. However, one very important matter which the Ukrainian minority was exercised about was the question of agrarian reform. The Ukrainian peasantry made up some 85 to even 90% of the Ukrainian minority that now found itself within the borders of the Polish state. Um, these, this minority 
displaying its resentment in various ways towards Poland, which involved the adoption of a rather sullen attitude towards all things Polish. It involved a degree of disruption, vandalism and sabotage at different times, which was encouraged by Poland's enemies, mainly Germany, and also involved the assassination of a number of leading Polish officials, including the Minister of the Interior in 1934. Indeed, as early as 1921, the Ukrainians, the extremist element of the Ukrainian nationalist movement had attempted to assassinate the Polish head of state, Josef Pilsudski. And that underlined the temperature in relations, the very hostile um, atmosphere that was already evident throughout the 1920s and which carried over into the 1930s and indeed was worsened by the rather devastating impact of the Great Depression, which on Poland itself um, made worse a whole host of economic, social and political issues. But this also re rebounded on the overall relationship between uh, Poland and its Ukrainian minority. Correspondingly, the attempt by the Polish state to introduce agrarian reform, and there were reform acts in 1921 and 1925, these were largely limited in scope. And it was stalled by the impact of the Great Depression. Um, but that was the situation and fitting in therefore to the already existing resentments of the Ukrainian minority. By 1939, by the time that the Second World War broke out the German invasion of Poland, followed by the Soviet invasion a few weeks later, relations between Poland and its Ukrainian minority were very low indeed. It would not be an exaggeration to state, I believe, that by 1939, most of the Ukrainian minority were disloyal citizens of the Polish Republic. Others may disagree, of course, but I think the evidence is pretty clear and unambiguous. The Second World War exacerbated Polish-Ukrainian relations. Some Ukrainians celebrated the fall of the Polish state in 1939 and welcomed the invasion of the Red Army. Some began to collaborate with the occupying Soviet forces, including the Secret Service, the NKVD. Despite the fact that some Ukrainians, like many Poles and Jews, were persecuted by the same Soviet occupiers. 
a further episode was opened up with the German invasion of the Soviet Union in the summer of 1941. Then the scope for collaboration between the occupying Germans, who now moved into all parts of pre-war Poland, the, the relationship between the Germans, the German occupiers, and the Ukrainians resulted in pretty large-scale collaboration, which was inherently anti-Polish in nature. Which goes some way, or quite a long way in fact, to explain the events between roughly 1942 and 1944, when the extremist elements of the Ukrainian nationalist movement conducted wholesale massacres of innocent Poles in the eastern borderlands, the Kresy. It's reckoned that around 40,000 Poles were murdered by these Ukrainian forces. This was only stopped once the Red Army had crossed the border in January 1944, the, the pre-war Polish border, because the Red Army, the Soviets, had no time for Ukrainian nationalism. And it meant therefore that there was immediate conflict on a low key scale as the main thrust of the Soviets was defeating Germany and moving towards Berlin. But at the end of the war in 1945, the Red Army, together with Polish communist units, addressed directly the Ukrainian nationalists in an operation, a military operation, which finally defeated these Ukrainian nationalists a year or two after the end of the Second World War. Meantime, at Stalin's insistence and with the acquiescence of the United States and Great Britain, let's say President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill, at the Yalta Conference in February 1945, Lvov and the area known usually as Eastern Galicia, that southern and southeastern part of the Kresy, the eastern borderlands, was gifted to Soviet Ukraine. Despite all historic connections between Poland and that area, including, of course, the city of Lvov. By the same token, in due course, the northern and northeastern parts of the former eastern, eastern borderlands were given to Belarus and the Vilno area to Lithuania. So at the end of the Second World War, Poland was deprived of what had been an essential and historic part of its territory. Following on from that, the Polish government in exile, based in London since 1940, 
regarded the Yalta conference, to which I had not been invited, of course, so therefore had no say in the proceedings, the Polish government in exile immediately repudiated the um, validity of the Yalta agreement insofar as it related to the, the loss of territory in the East. The government exile continued with that stance right up until the collapse of communism in Poland in 1989, the round table talks and so on. And with the collapse of communism in Poland, the exile government believed that its mission had been accomplished. Consequently, at a solemn ceremony in Warsaw in December 1990, the seals of office of the Republic of Poland, which had been kept throughout the war and post-war period by the exile government, were handed over to the newly elected president of Poland, Lech Wałęsa. The belief was that a post-communist Poland, post-communist Polish governments, would honor the commitments of the Polish government in exile, particularly regarding the Eastern borderlands. Of course, that did not happen, has not happened since. And the reasons for this are varied, of course. For a start, post-communist Poland had many formidable issues to address, economic, social, political matters. So maybe there wasn't time to address the whole Yalta outcome. Also, overall conditions in, in Europe after the war and for a long time afterwards were arguably not conducive to any border changes. Nonetheless, it might have been expected that some kind of acknowledgement of the exile government's concern and stance on the altar would have been recognized by someone in Poland, a prominent politician or a political party. But the chances of that were already receding as the 1990s wore on. First of all, to the great consternation of the Polish immigratia, a government was formed for a while composed of former communists. And not only that, but shortly after that, a former communist, Alexander Kwasniewski, was elected president of Poland. This was almost unbelievable from the point of view of the supporters of the Polish 
government in exile. And also seemed to underline that, and this was underlined as time went on, that Polish politicians, for the most part, were of rather poor caliber, had no real sense of Polish history. And indeed, it was suspected they had been Sovietized to one degree or another. That they weren't aware of the, really the importance of this Yalta issue to the immigratia. And as time went on, of course, further into the end of that century and into the 21st century, hopes of something be done about recovering the roof, Vilno, and the eastern borderlands as a whole were receding quickly. I'm not the only member of the Polish immigratia who has wondered what the great leaders of the exiled Poles would have made of this situation. I'm thinking of the likes of General Radislav Anders, the victim of Monte Cassino, and General Stanislav Maciek, commander of the legendary Polish First Armored Division. Maciek, of course, was born in Drohobis, southeast of Lviv. What would they have made of the silence? Because no politician, no, no major politician, and no major political party in Poland has said anything worthwhile about the Yalta situation. So a certain degree of disillusionment has undoubtedly crept in to the perception of present day Poland among many members of the immigratia. And that seemed to be supported by the site a few weeks ago of the leader of the Law and Justice Party in Poland, Jarosław Kaczynski, and the Polish Prime Minister traveling to Kiev to reassure President Zelensky of Poland's support for Ukraine's national sovereignty and its territorial integrity. What was that all about? And all left with, I'm afraid to say, is vacuous rhetoric instead of principled action. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Did you get my? That face? was good. Yep, good. it was perfect. Yep. <laughs> I think I've missed things out. I have written out my notes here, and I just I can't make them out, so I had to improvise almost mm. for the entire period. How long did that last? Um, probably like, half an hour. Yeah, probably like thirty minutes. I would say. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think right, that's there we are. Okay. Yeah, so we'll leave it. Mm -hmm. Sorry. 
Yeah, we'll be um, premiering them on April 22nd. Yeah. Um, so we'll premiere it on fa our Facebook page, and then we'll also put it on our YouTube. Um, and we have a SoundCloud account, so it's like an audio version of it. Um, but we'll also send you the links to that as well once we get them posted. Okay, I have to say, um, I'm technologically backward. I never use Facebook or okay. any of these other social media. YouTube never used it. Okay. I know this sounds really reactionary. I apologize, <laughs> but that's just how it is. It's a generational thing. Yeah. Um, but I don't need to clue in. I don't need to link in on the twenty second of April, do I? Or do I answer questions? Or no? No, no. Yeah, you're you're okay. good. Yeah, that's that's fine. Well, mm -hmm. we'll leave it at that, and we'll see what transpires between now and then. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Uh, it was great meeting you. Thank you. Thanks for all your help, Hannah. Of course. Bye Have a good rest us. of your day. Bye. You too. Bye bye.